This is Seeking Peace on Earth, one of our Peace Talks Radio annual specials that presents some highlights from just one season's worth of programs in our series totally devoted to peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. I'm series producer and co-founder Paul Ingalls, along with co-founder Suzanne Kreider and our tiny but talented team of four or five part-time freelance correspondents, we began the year 2023 turning the corner from completing a full 20 seasons of our project. 2023 was one of those years when we had to come to grips again with what our little nonprofit organization could do and could not do from our tiny independent home studios and our 12 by 12 office built into the corner of my home garage. We're not equipped to offer timely coverage of, for example, the two wars that waged loudly and sadly in Ukraine and the Middle East that year, or analyze in detail the constantly shifting sands of the political and social divisions that dominate the 24-7 coverage of the world's major news organizations. Our mission remained to protect just some of the media real estate for constructive, solutions-based talk about how we can all face the many sources of conflict in our daily lives, in our society, in our world, with a practical toolkit of ideas that could actually be put to use today, here and now, to reduce the negative impacts that internal and interpersonal and intersectional conflict has in our world every day. Here at Peace Talks Radio, we really do believe in that ripple effect that all of us as individuals can have if we feel more empowered to face conflict head on. In our minds at Peace Talks Radio, conflict is not a bad thing to be run from or swept under the rug. Facing conflict with the helpful toolkit that we hope to provide is the key to a better tomorrow, a more perfect union, or as Dr. Martin Luther King always referred to it, the beloved community. So today, samples of our program from that one season trying to bring us a step closer to all of that. We start with part of a program we did about the conflict many of us feel with our often daily encounters with homeless or unhoused people in our communities. If we're privileged to have safe housing ourselves, when we see unhoused folks, there's often a mix of thoughts and impulses and feelings, and uncertainty and even internal conflict over all those thoughts, feelings, and impulses coming up. Local governments have a hard time settling on how to help the unhoused as well. Our correspondent Emily Cohen talked with several stakeholders on this issue, including Ren Fialka, a longtime resident of Jackson, Wyoming, and the founder and executive director of the Spread the Love Commission that outreaches to assist the unhoused population in her community. What do you say to people who might see unhoused people on the street, but then don't know how to help? It's one of the huge elephants in the room is that sense of helplessness. You know, the first thing, and it's the reason we call it Spread the Love, is the first thing that anybody needs. And I always say this, you know, human beings need love like plants need water. It's essential. And the first thing that anybody really truly needs is to be acknowledged. And of course, you, you need to recognize, just like you would with anybody else, that you're Interacting with someone you've never met before, you don't know their history, you don't know anything about them. I think the stigma that people experiencing homelessness have had to face and deal with every day, people initially, you know, a a housed person is usually has some kind of distrust or fear, reticence about approaching them at all. There's been studies where people that are looking at someone who is obviously experiencing homelessness Actually, their brain 
sees them as an object instead of a person. So I think the dehumanization of homelessness has been the big problem from the beginning. The first thing that you want to do if you want to engage with somebody who's experiencing homelessness is first use your common sense that you would with anyone. You know, check your situation out, kind of feel the vibe with them. Just even a a smile, eye contact, a good morning, that's a great place to start. If it's someone you pass every day, let it bloom naturally like any other relationship. If it's somebody who's out there actually with a sign, take a minute to read the sign. Don't immediately go to whatever potential horror story you've heard from somebody else or a negative experience you've had yourself. Everyone's an individual. That population is as widely varied as any other population we have in the United States. We've now been doing this for over nine years. And no matter what we bring out there, including tents and sleeping bags, what we get, our feedback has always been the thing that you brought out here today that was the most valuable was that you stayed with us and you heard our stories and you gave us a hug or you said hello or you respected what we had to say. You gave us time. You treated us like equals. That's the biggest gift you can give anyone. And, you know, it's not always going to be well-received. People have PTSD out there. They're not treated well. Some of them are dealing with mental illness or addiction, or they've just been, they just have no trust. And you you can give them that too. They're allowed to feel that way. But don't make that person the poster child of every other person that you could have an interaction with. And respect their space if they shy away or they don't, you know, maybe if you pass them the next day, give them a little bit more of a smile. Or if they really don't want to be engaged with, give them that. That's respectful. What about in situations where you see somebody asking for money? I know a lot of people Mm -hmm. are conflicted about that. Do you give that person money? Okay, so I love this question. I struggle with it a lot, too. First of all, a lot of common sense things here. We don't carry money with us when we're on outreach. What I recommend people do if they want to be helpful in the day-to-day and they want to offer something more than a smile or a hello is to get something like a meal card. And what you're looking for with a meal card is you're looking for a place like a Starbucks or a Subway or a McDonald's. I know it's not always healthy, but you're not their parent and it's hot, delicious food. If it's something in that area that they could easily walk to, you're not just giving them a meal. You're also giving them access to possibly a restroom and indoors. They're a paying customer. You know, the very people that need access to running water and a bathroom and all of these other things that don't have homes, they're not allowed to go into most establishments like a housed person could just walk in and out even if they didn't buy something. If you look like you're experiencing homelessness, you might not even get in the front door. If you're giving somebody a meal card, very easy thing to carry, 10 or $15, they can share it with one of their friends. They can, they can have it multiple times. You're giving them access to indoors, possibly a bathroom, and food. That was Ren Fialka, founder of the nonprofit Spread the Love, that distributes personal care, clothing, and hygiene supplies to unhoused people. You can hear Emily Cohen's entire interview with Ren at our website, peacetalksradio.com. 
Next, part of correspondent Priyanka Shankar's conversation with musician, author, speaker, and community activist David Lamott. Whatever David seems to do in his community, and in his music, writing, and speaking, he says it's driven by simple principles that can guide us all. As we try to figure out how to respond to hatred, I think it's important to not sink into that hatred ourselves, to find ways to, to heal that. And I think it's really healed through relationship and through compassion. It's, it's, it sounds so trite to say that love is really what changes the world, but actually it's empirically true. Love is what changes the world. And, and, and I mean not just the emotion of love. In fact, I don't even mean the emotion of love. I mean a policy of love, holding up someone else's dignity and value as equivalent to your own and treating them accordingly, no matter how you feel, sometimes in spite of how you feel rather than because of it. David, is there anything else you'd like to add that I haven't um, probably asked you about? So in November of 2016 in the United States, there was a very contentious election that I think everybody on the planet has probably pretty much heard about when Donald Trump was elected. And I live in a neighborhood in a small town in the South that didn't have a sidewalk on my street for many years. And people would sometimes walk up and down the street, but cars went on that street very, very fast. And I was afraid for them every time I saw somebody walking. And then one day the town actually listened to some complaints from neighbors and came and put the, the sidewalk in to my neighborhood. And over the next year or two, I watched my neighborhood change as people started walking their babies and walking their dogs and walking down to town along that sidewalk. They started to know each other a little bit and threads of connection were woven in this neighborhood. And then this election happened in 2016 and I felt like the town had come in and ripped out the sidewalk because my neighbors were all afraid to talk to each other. They didn't know how they voted. And they were literally afraid of what was going to happen next. And they didn't want to deal with the conflict of finding out that they had voted differently from each other. That election mattered a lot. People live and die by elections. I'm not trying to minimize the significance of it. In fact, just the opposite. It matters a great deal. But I found that my neighbors were afraid to talk to me. And I wanted my neighbors to know that no matter who they voted for, I would happily jump their car battery if their car battery was dead. If they needed to borrow some uh, groceries because they were in the middle of making something, they could come and knock on my door. I wanted to let my neighbors know that I still want to be in community. Not because the differences don't matter, but because they do. Our only chance of moving forward is to know each other and love each other because people are very seldom rejected into more compassionate ways of living. So I just wanted to put a sign on my house. And I was saying that to my family one night over dinner. I was so frustrated. I said, I just want to nail a sign to the front of the house that says, Hey, you can knock on our door. You can, you can, uh, talk to us if we can help you in some way. No matter who you voted for, because I think relationship comes first and then transformation happens, not the other way around. We can't demand that people are transformed in order to be in relationship. It is relationship that changes us. So then it occurred to me that I actually know how to have signs made. <laughs> so, you know, it's always dangerous when you hear yourself say somebody oughta, because then you remember that you're somebody. 
So I actually did. I had a big sign made and I nailed it to the front of my house. It's three feet wide and eight feet tall. And it says, you are our neighbors, no matter who you vote for, who you love, where you're from, the color of your skin. We will try to be here for you. That's what community means. Let's be neighbors. And I nailed that sign to the front of my house. And it was amazing to see the conversations that grew out of that. As people came and knocked my door and asked me about the sign, people pulled into the driveway to take pictures of it. And then people started asking where they could get one. And so I started making them for people. And now there's a, a website, let's be neighbors dot com that is where people can go and get it and i feel so strongly about the message that people can actually download the sign and print their own if they want for free uh, they don't have to pay me anything for it but they can also order signs if they want to and now those are hanging across the country and i think that matters i think the stories that grow out of that the conversations that grow out of that weave the threads of the fabric of society and in a time when people are actively trying to cut the fabric of society to shreds, I think it's really important that we not only refrain from cutting the fabric of society, but that we actively weave the threads back together. So I believe in community peacemaking in community justice work. I think all of us can show up for that in our own small ways. And I really think it matters. That was David Lamott, songwriter, speaker, and author. And you can hear Priyanka Shankar's entire interview with David at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special, featuring highlights from our 21st season on the air. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And next, we excerpt a program produced by our correspondent, Julia Joubert who dove into the challenge of estrangement in personal relationships. We've all been there. Whether it's with family members or friends or work colleagues, something happens in the relationship that causes one or the other in a relationship to pull back, sometimes disappear altogether. We become familiar with terms like ghosting or canceling in such situations. In her program, Julia spoke with a woman who had become estranged from her two daughters, and after some considerable time at a distance, managed a kind of reconciliation, and another woman who was still estranged from her father but felt that was the best and safest place for her to be in her case. Julia also talked with therapist Dr. Eileen Fullchange, a licensed psychologist, certified school psychologist, and speaker. I want to back up a little bit and talk about what even reconciliation means, because there's reconciliation of the relationship, but then I think there's also a process of reconciliation within the person. And as a set, well, certainly in American society, but in many societies, we are not actually taught how to reconcile. And there's very broad historical reasons for that, as well as interpersonal reasons. Certainly in my own family, we weren't taught reconciliation. And I can trace that back to not just the interpersonal or lack of interpersonal skills that my parents and grandparents and so on, but I can trace that all the way back to the history of colonization. And here in the United States, similarly, there's a long history of, of colonization and lack of repair, lack of reconciliation. So I want to really normalize that, you know, if one is not raised in a way that has modeled reconciliation, 
either in our families or societally, then of course we are not going to be equipped, nor are the other people who are we are estranged from going to be equipped with how to reconcile. So I want to really slow down and talk more about reconciliation within oneself before trying to reconcile with another person. Mm-hmm. When we look at the research on compassion and empathy, we actually find that it's much more difficult to show and feel compassion and empathy toward another person without first showing compassion and empathy toward oneself. So that's the first step is just to slow down and allow for space and time for the person who is experiencing that estrangement to actually recognize what are these feelings that I'm feeling? What are they coming from? And perhaps they're coming from this long personal history that I have with this person. Perhaps there's larger societal and historical context also. And to really have a felt sense of, gosh, I make sense to me and I accept me and where I'm feeling, whether that is a sense of sadness and grief or oftentimes a lot of anger. And that one, I think, especially the angry feelings, I think are a bit harder for a lot of folks to sit with. We're not a society that says, hey, let's sit in feelings or let's sit in anger, especially. I do think it's important to take time to do that. And then going forward, you know, then we can talk about what reconciliation might look like from a broader perspective. Just like estrangement is along a continuum, so is reconciliation along a continuum. So for a lot of folks who I work with might not term those interactions as reconciliation, but oftentimes there will be sort of a new version of the relationship. And so I think this this idea of reconciliation as returning back to however things were is unrealistic because there's been a long process, a long history that's often led to the estrangement Mm. and that doesn't just go away. And the process of reconciliation can often look like new realizations, new understandings, so that whatever new relationship is formed, however it forms, whatever shape it takes, it is going to be and maybe should be different than how it was before. And if people choose not to reconcile, that is often viewed as a failure, a failure of a relationship, be it a friendship or a relationship with family. Because through our conversation, I'm understanding, you know, we're, we're trying to normalize this. So how would you advise somebody experiencing that feeling of, of shame and failure? How would you advise them to kind of reframe that for themselves if, you know, at least for now, this is it? So oftentimes what happens in the work that I do with folks is as folks get healthier and healthier, their relationships with other people, whether it's family or friends, changes. And that's because oftentimes health begets health. So to think of a relationship ending as a failure is just inaccurate. Oftentimes it's often actually an indication of health. We, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you're gardening, you got to take out some of the plants in order to make room for the plants that you really want to grow and thrive and flourish. And it's very similar in that sometimes in order to make room for healthy relationships to to grow and flourish, we do have to limit the unhealthy relationships. And that is a success for a lot of folks, even just setting a boundary and being able to say, you know, this isn't what I want. That's a success. That's huge. So I would encourage folks to reframe things in that way and also to find people who are able to reframe uh, the narrative in that way and to support or reinforce the reframe. Dr. Eileen Fullchange on estrangement in relationships. And you can hear Julia Joubert's other guests 
and more in that full program. It's show number nine in our 2023 season. Look for it on our website, peacetalksradio.com. In our show number six of that same season, you'll hear our correspondent Yamani Ranjan talk with several experts and stakeholders on the topic of cultural appropriation. When someone or some company takes the imagery, the iconography, or the art of a particular person or culture or community without permission or even proper acknowledgement while profiting from that misuse. Yamini spoke with Claudia A. Foxtree, a multiracial and multicultural professional educator and social justice activist who facilitates courses and workshops on having challenging conversations about diversity, equity, and social justice. In one part of the program, the two talked about the more recent practice of plaques going up or announcements preceding official meetings acknowledging that buildings or events of colonizing populations are in fact existing on indigenous lands that were taken over by the colonizers many years ago. It can be performative and it shouldn't. (laughs) Um, So I, I have heard it be performative. You know, this is whose land we're on. Um, I do workshops on it, and that's not where we want to be. A sign in your building maybe could be performative. This building sits on Wampanoag land. Maybe you could, you could say more, but that'd be the closest to like, that's okay performative that I would get was you've got a static sign. We shouldn't expect if we're in a place where indigenous people are hosting that they're going to do a tribal land acknowledgement. Because we don't invite people in our home and say, let me tell you, this is my home. Because you've just come and you know it's their home. Mm. People who are colonizers, which actually includes me because my nation's not from the land where I'm standing, need to recognize that they are on someone else's land and that those people are still alive. And Mm -hmm. by saying that, it's not enough. What what have you learned about that group? Or what have you learned about Native issues and causes? Or what have you learned now that's different than the last time you stood there to talk about what a land acknowledgement was? And in that way, you up the ante in terms of, I'm doing a tribal land acknowledgement, and I'm raising the visibility by telling you something about Indigenous people. Then it becomes real. Then it becomes you're trying to be an ally and have a relationship. Right. So if a non-Indigenous person wants to borrow elements from your culture, what questions should they first ask themselves? Why are you borrowing it and what's the context of borrowing? Because giving credit is a big piece of it. The other thing is um, using it in the way that it's meant to be used, not some other way. So here is an example. I'm going to say a word. I want you to imagine what this word means. It's an indigenous word. A lot of people think of it not as an indigenous thing. So here's the word. Winnebago. Winnebago. Did you think of the Ho-Chunk mm-hmm. people from the Great Lakes area? Because that's who they are. They lived in the past. They live in the present. They have many, many industries. Right. Or did you think of a huge recreational vehicle? Winnebago has been wow, yes. appropriated and used in a way that is no longer even connected to the original people. That is the extreme problem, harmfulness of what can happen with appropriation. Right. So, Claudia, how do non-Indigenous people show up for Indigenous people? It's a lot bigger than cultural appropriation. I mean, that's just a small part of the problem. And cultural appropriation is harmful because it's one of the extensions of centuries 
of racism, genocide, and oppression. This is not somebody being offended that you're doing it. It is something related to being, yet again, oppressed by somebody doing it. And the context is that Indigenous Native people never migrated to somewhere else in the world. It isn't like you're going to find a whole bunch of Wampanoag people in the middle of Germany, right? And so the context of this is the only place it needs to be and should be is where allies and people who want to support Indigenous people comes in. That we need the voices lifted of the people whose land we're on. We're on somebody else's land whose stories are misrepresented, misunderstood, uh, and have been totally formed through a dominant narrative instead of the people talking for themselves. Um, so that piece of visibility is the best thing that our allies can do. You can find links to Claudia Foxtree's interview and work at peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you can also hear more of this interview, either in the hour-long version of it or in Yemeni's full extended interview with Claudia Foxtree, peacetalksradio.com. Hostage-taking and hostage-release negotiating is a high-stakes conflict scenario that can certainly surge and has been happening around wars like in Ukraine and the Middle East flaring up during our 2023 season. But these situations also happen every day in some place in the world on a smaller scale, and it takes highly trained people working delicately in every aspect of a hostage negotiation to bring about a nonviolent resolution to these scenarios. In one of our programs in Season 21, our Danielle Price explored all fronts of hostage-taking and negotiating, including her conversation with Sue Williams, a hostage negotiator with international organizations in the humanitarian world, who told Danielle real-life hostage negotiating is, no big surprise here, not much like it's shown in the movies. I think sometimes in the movies you just get this husky, disc-jockey voice saying, talk to me, and, and that's, that's the beginning of it. Well, if only it were that easy. It doesn't work like that. There's lots of, um, lots of preparation in some of the movies I've seen. The negotiator tends to get involved in a lot of the decision making and a lot of other aspects where in real life, as the, if you are doing the negotiator role, you just stick to that role. You, you, you don't really have much involvement in other aspects of the response because your job is to build rapport and to get on with the, the hostage taker or whoever it is that is in crisis. Mm. And so that's one difference, the, the lack of preparation. But I guess that's, that's not really entertainment, is it? Watching somebody <laughs> prepare or watching somebody do a risk assessment is not really riveting entertainment. So I can understand why that's let, let out. How did you end up getting into this work in the first place? I was, um, I was a police officer and um, I knew that I wanted to become a detective. So I, um, I became a detective. And then I thought I wanted to investigate murders because I, I thought that would be the, the pinnacle of anyone's detective career. But along the way, somebody suggested, one of my senior officers suggested that I might be quite good at negotiation. And the funny thing is, the reason that he gave was because he said I talked a lot. And anybody that knows anything about negotiation knows that it's it's not about talking, it's it's about listening. Mm. But he was right. I um it did work for me. I felt like a round peg in a round hole. 
once that um once I discovered it really your main job is to build the rapport you said how do you do that yeah it's not easy is the first answer sometimes you're working through an interpreter sometimes you're not so you just really have to begin by listening you have to listen without judgment you have to ask questions that are going to hopefully harvest some of the information but the main thing you have to do Danielle is you have to try and understand your counterpart it doesn't matter if you don't agree with them you just have to understand them without judgment and I think some people can't understand that I can't I I have to do that and why I have to do that because how could I be arrogant enough to get them to do what I say if if I haven't taken the time and the trouble to understand their their life and to see the world from from their eyes so so really in the beginning it's relationship building it's building up rapport it's communication then it's hopefully good communication and and then that flips over into negotiation. Mm. And I think in my mind, I'm always conscious when I've moved from communication into negotiation. When you are in the negotiation phase, does honesty work best? Or is there some level of gameplay that's employed or some level of misdirection needed? No, you have to use honesty. And the reason that you have to do that, Danielle, is negotiation is based on a lot of trust, even trust in bad people. You have to do that sometimes. And if you get caught out on a lie, then you're never going to get that trust back, are you? It's a bit, mm. bit like a broken glass. You can put it back together again, but it's never going to quite look the same. Mm. And do you have to um, do you have to empathise with the other person? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, hundred hundred percent. Yeah, and sometimes you can create tactical empathy, also get them to empathise with you as well. Yeah, empathy is a is a is a huge tool in the box. Not sympathy. But but empathy definitely. How, how do you how do you do that? What's tactical empathy, and how do you get somebody who obviously has a a pretty strong motivation to do something empathize with you? Well, you just you just have to listen and, and come up with the right words. Okay. Are there um are there specific uh, turns of phrases or ways to word things that that you find can de-escalate situations? Yeah, just the normal de-escalation tactics that you would use with a colleague that was having a bit of an angry moment the the normal don't match their voice keep keep your voice calm never say the word i understand because that you don't do you mm. nobody can really understand how somebody else feels and also what the right to understand is is really not given to you is it as such if that makes sense how do you mean yeah. about not having the right to understand well if if somebody says i i understand how you feel a, they don't know that, do they? Because they don't know how you feel. Okay, yeah. So that's why it can sometimes be, it can sometimes be quite a provocative thing to say, and and actually can spark somebody in crisis, can can spark them off in the wrong direction. Hostage negotiator Sue Williams with our Danielle Price. Danielle also talked with someone who'd been held hostage before, and an academic who researched hostage negotiating techniques and personality traits that good negotiators generally have. It's a cool episode, number 11, in our 21st season. Short break here, then more. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Stay tuned.
I'm Peace Talks Radio co-founder and host Paul Ingalls. Look for all our episodes online by visiting peacetalksradio.com. And while you're there, also look for our donate button to help us continue our nonprofit work. Today, we're hearing some highlights from our 21st season of programs about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies, including a program hosted by our Julia Joubert, who asked what happens in a relationship when one individual in the pairing takes suddenly and seriously ill or is perhaps going through addiction recovery of some type. For the other, it may be that nagging musical question by the group The Clash, should I stay or should I go? If you've been involved in any role in that kind of scenario, we recommend you seeking out episode number 7 of season 21 of Peace Talks Radio. But here's a clip as Julia talks with Donnie Von Sale, a woman living with POTS, P-O-T-S, the chronic condition that brings on fainting from standing up too quickly, among other things, and other chronic illnesses, too. Donnie's been reckoning with the isolation that her illness brings. What unfortunately happened is I got too good at letting people go. People coming in and out of my life sort of became the norm, and I didn't realize that that was not normal. But I did realize how much it hurt every time, and so I stopped letting people into my life. Would you rather have somebody say, hey, this relationship is just not meeting my expectations, and therefore I am calling it quits? Because that's a hard conversation to have. I honestly, I myself, I think I would... I'd be stressing over it for months. I would, yeah, I would 100% take that. And by that little communication, there's also a chance to learn exactly what that person was feeling and how I could try and adapt if I was able to. Ending things, relationships, whatever, it's, it's never going to be easy. But I think it's how you move on from that that matters the most. You are pretty good at communicating your needs and, and your desires and where you are at in a day. How do you communicate these needs once check-ins with friends and family? My whole life's like motto, I guess, would be, you know, that cliche that honesty is the best policy. Yeah. So why lie? Why pretend? Because there was a very long time where I was pretending that I could do everything, that I could manage everything, that I was fine. And when I realized I wasn't fine, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to change how I communicate. And I think people are scared to communicate their true feelings or what they're going through because they don't want to look like failures in their partner's eyes and their family's eyes. Because when you are trying to communicate what you're dealing with, when you talk about it, you can't help hide your emotions. It's been really interesting talking to you and hearing how you navigate your relationships in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are carrying almost the quote-unquote sufferer role as well as the role of the caregiver, in that you are aware of your own pain, what you're struggling with, but then you are empathizing exceptionally with other people as well. You, you hit the nail on the head there with caregiver. That, that is my role, not just from my point of view, but in terms of 
family and friends. That is the role that I've played and often to my own detriment, yes. Do you think that comes with the the self-isolation as well of not wanting to be a burden then means that people don't see that there is something to be looking after? Yes, definitely. But I am in, you know, quite a few support groups on Facebook and that does seem to be a common theme. Mm. That yes, it's from self-isolation, but you can also see how you are isolated through their actions as well. But these groups are helpful even if even if you don't interact. Sometimes it's just nice to you see something pop up and you go, "Oh, I've experienced exactly that." I'm not totally alone in that. I wanted to close with a question on the relationships that you have in your life that have been maintained, that are working, where communication is flowing. What do you value most in those relationships? I think the best relationships that I have are with my niece and nephew. And that might sound strange, but the nine and seven and for me I've wanted to give them a perspective of life that I never had and I'll take them for dinner and it will be a a feelings dinner so we'll how are you feeling today Mm. and why do you feel this way you know it's okay to feel this way it's just trying to create a world for these kids where there's no feeling of invalidity. Yes, those relationships for me are, I think, the most important because it it's nurturing from both sides. Do you feel like it, in a way, by imparting that, it's emboldening you in those feelings as well? It does, and I've never seen kinder children, and that is something that just makes my heart happy. Well, that was Danny Fonsale. Her full interview, as well as the rest of Julia's complete interviews with her guests today, can all be heard at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Another of many compelling conversations that we aired in our 21st season of Peace Talks Radio was one that our correspondent Sen John had with diversity, equity, and inclusion expert and poet Kevin Gaughan about what it means to be a better ally to members of marginalized communities and how we can at times all be both the oppressed as well as the oppressor without being aware of it. It is important that people take responsibility because the relationships that you can form with other people, especially people from marginalized groups, will become so much richer, so much more connecting, so much more powerful, so much more meaningful once you start realizing that you are disconnecting from them because of your unaware oppressive behaviors. The moment my relationships with women can be so much more meaningful when I start realizing that my behaviors are biased, oppressive, and disconnecting. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because what I've not considered is when you do have that privilege, you're disconnected from people who don't have that privilege and you cannot connect with the people who you might want to connect with. And it's lonely. It it is lonely. And let me just jump on that loneliness. So I I said that as a man, I can develop healthier, richer relationships with women if I address my male biases towards women. But just imagine how much richer and healthier my relationship can be towards other men if we collectively as men start addressing toxic masculinity and healing. Like, how many men can genuinely say that they've said to another man, 
not romantically, but just to another male friend, I love you. When was the last time you either texted or verbally said to another man, not romantically, I love you? The fact that we don't dare to say that to other men is A, homophobic, and B, is oppressive, sad, leads to loneliness. And so if I can say to another man, I love you, genuinely, my relationship to that other man can be so much healthier, so much richer. So it's not just me having healthier relationships to women, but it's also me having healthier relationships to men and having healthier relationships to non-binary people. How would you respond to people who... When they hear stories of your hardships, they say, you know, everybody's got hardships. Some people have hardships with racism. Some people have hardships with political status. Some people have hardships yeah. with abuse. Everyone's got hardships. Yeah. So let's listen to those experiences. Let's acknowledge the hardships. Let's not compete because trauma works different for people. You can't say this is traumatic and that isn't. There is no universal scale for pain. So if I say that racism hurts me on a scale of 1 to 10 as 10, no one has the right to say, no, it's a 6. There is no universal scale for pain. Pain is subjective. Something can cause tremendous pain for one person and not for another. Let's learn to have the capacity to develop relationships with people who have gone through very different experiences than ourselves. If I, for example, would sit with somebody who's been raped, and I have not been raped. I have to learn to hold space for that person. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that my ability to hold space for that person, to listen to their pain, to not define them the way I want, but to listen to where they're at right now, depends on my ability to explore my relationship with discomfort, my relationship with all the things that I don't yet know, don't yet understand, which is often uncertainty, discomfort, chaos, lots of unknown. And my ability to, to sit with that will determine very much the, the quality of the relationship I can build with the other person. Have you ever had experiences where you're like, wow, the intensity of this person's experience might destabilize me, might change my understanding of who I am so much that I don't know how to be anymore? If I think about situations where I felt overwhelmed, if I'm very honest, the reason why I felt overwhelmed is because I felt that I needed to do something. Mm, yeah, right. To make it better. Yeah. yeah. But to make it better for the other person is not empathy. The other person never asked me to fix them. To make it better is just because I can't sit with the discomfort right now. So I want to fix it straight away. You want to fix it for yourself. Yeah. In those moments, I wanted to fix it for me because I wanted to escape the discomfort. The biggest service we can do to, to ourselves, to the other person and to the relationship with the other person the moment when we feel overwhelmed is to look really deep within ourselves and figure out what is so hard for me about this? Mm -hmm. What is this teaching me about myself rather than the other person? Because mm -hmm. the discomfort isn't about the other person most of the time. Mm -hmm. It's about our inability to sit with it. So mm -hmm. if I feel the need to fix it, why am I feeling the need to fix it? And if we're willing to sit with those kind of questions to explore our inner world, inside out perspective, we have an opportunity to gain incredible insight and wisdom that will help us to develop better relationships in the future. Kevin Gohan there, a poet and diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI speaker, in conversation with our correspondent, Sen John, on how to be a better ally to oppressed populations in our world. More with Kevin and Sen's other guests can be found in Episode 3 in our 21st season. 
at peacetalksradio.com. Throughout the world in recent decades, more communities and nations trying to recover from historical traumas have tried Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in search of a fresh start for themselves. Our correspondent Danielle Price was curious how well these commissions have been judged to have done. She devoted our episode number eight in the 2023 season to it. Here now part of her conversation with Dr. Areshni Naidu-Silverman, Program Director of the Global Transitional Justice Initiative at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. The most famous example of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is South Africa, which is generally considered to be a success. What has actually happened as a long-term result? So the South African Truth and Reconciliation process, as you said, has been uh, celebrated globally. However, um, increasingly, uh, there's been more and more criticism of the process itself. For starters, it had a very limited definition of uh, human rights violations. So it focused on civil and political rights violations and ignored economic, social, and cultural rights. And much of apartheid was based on racial segregation, but also an unequal division of resources between white South Africans, black South Africans, Indians, and in South Africa, what biracial people were called coloreds. The amnesty clause was also problematic. So it offered perpetrators an opportunity to come forward to share the truth about whatever acts they perpetrated in exchange for amnesty. However, many perpetrators came forward, shared partial truths, often with very little remorse, and there was a burden placed on survivors to forgive the perpetrators and kind of move on. The success of truth commissions is often judged on uh, the way victims are treated and often the delivery around reparations particularly. And to date, there are thousands of victims in South Africa uh, that are still fighting for reparations. And you said uh, at the beginning of your response there that globally it has been widely celebrated. Um, so the criticism that you're speaking of, is is that more internally inside of South Africa or is that uh, shifting globally as well? No, it's global. I think at that time, the reason it was so celebrated is that it was one of the few truth commissions that was public. So it was on national television. They had offered amnesty. It offered a platform for victims to come forward. So it was very innovative in multiple ways. However, years later, we still see that the Truth Commission didn't do much in terms of repairing. Transitional justice, in lots of ways, is unable to address some of the root causes of conflict. So it does it very superficially, and it's also a very political process. Arashni, we want to talk also about some less well-known examples of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. So let's start with the Gambia. In 2017, the Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission was set up to investigate abuses under the leadership of President Yahya Jame, which lasted from 1994 to 2017. What was the outcome of this process? One of the positive 
things about truth commissions is that it aims to uncover a past. And in lots of conflict situations, as well as in authoritarian situations, as in the case of Gambia, there's lots of silences in the society. So things are hidden. People refuse to talk about acts that were perpetrated. Often victims are living next to the perpetrator in lots of contexts. What transitional justice, the truth commissions do, is that they allow for these silences to be broken and for some of the shame and taboo around some of this to be resolved. That's what happened in the Gambia context as well. It was able to uncover some of the truths that happened under the Jammer regime. In Gambia, there was very little thought that went into how women were going to testify. There were local partners that set up women's listening circles for women to share their experiences of what happened. Arashni, how can transitional justice processes be evaluated? How do we know whether or not they worked uh, in the examples that we've been discussing? There is increasing questioning about whether transitional justice actually works. The problem as well is that in terms of evaluation, while you can evaluate the short-term results of a transitional justice process like a truth commission, the fact is that transitional justice goals of truth, justice, and reconciliation actually happen over a long term and may even happen over generations. And so it's difficult to assess whether it's it's been successful or not. But as I said, there are certain indicators, for example, whether it was victim-centered, whether it was local, locally owned, whether survivors and victims received reparations, whether they were treated in a specific way in terms of was there a consultative process, were they included in the process, were women included. So I think we can set up a list of indicators for short-term success, but in terms of longer-term success, that's a little bit more difficult to assess. And are there also negatives of transitional justice processes? That it sets up expectations, particularly for survivor and victim communities. And what needs to happen during that process is that uh, survivor and victims' expectations need to be managed. There's, there's generally a perception that we're going to go through a truth commission process, we're going to uncover the truth, there's going to be a report, we're going to get reparations, we're going to get recognition. Uh, I think that's something that lots of victims look for is recognition that they have been harmed, there has been a wrong done. And in some cases, they don't get that recognition. Uh, in lots of contexts that I've worked, I've found that often victims want somebody to listen to their story and want somebody to recognize that there has been a harm done. And in lots of communities, victims are ostracized for the violations that they experienced. And truth commissions sometimes don't often fulfill those expectations and needs of survivors. You can read more about the Truth Commission examples described by Arashni Naidu Silverman through a link to the Global Initiative for Justice, Truth and Reconciliation at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also hear the full extended interview between Arashni and Daniel Price. A threat of both international and domestic terrorism has been a constant in our world for decades now. Radicalization of individuals to practice such terrorism has been identified as one of the key reasons behind these attacks, forcing governments around the world to focus on countering terrorism through de-radicalization, 
On one of our Peace Talks radio episodes, correspondent Priyanka Shankar talked with our guests about what drives people into joining terrorist groups and how counterterrorism efforts are trying to flip extremists to bolster peace. One of our guests was Mubin Sheikh, a professor of public safety at Seneca College in Toronto and an international expert in counterterrorism efforts, who also works with Parents for Peace, an NGO in the U.S. which empowers and helps families prevent radicalization. Mubin was radicalized himself as a young man to join a Muslim group that was more extreme and politicized in its fundamentalism. He subsequently left that group not long after the 9-11 attacks on the U.S. in 2001. Losing faith in the overly fundamental and violently aggressive trends of that movement, he described his personal de-radicalization to correspondent Priyanka Shankar. There are two primary sources of Islam, and they are the Quran and the Sunnah. The Sunnah is the demonstrated example and the sayings and tacit approvals of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And there was a whole uh, methodology that is employed in understanding Islam. There's the Quran and Sunnah, and then it goes into, you know, biographical material. And that's where you get most of the war stories that uh, extremists, you know, fixate on. Uh, and as I was reminded, there was a very, very small portion of time in which Muslims were engaged in fighting. You know, for the first 10 of the 23 years that the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, was with the community, there was nothing. And even in the subsequent years uh, after that, a very small amount of time over the 23 years or, uh, you know, in the complete period, a very small portion was spent in fighting. And so, and then you also learn that in what is called Sira and Maghazi material, um, these are, these are reports that are not as authentic and accurate as what we might find in the, in the hadith, which are basically like raw intelligence reports that have been associated degrees of reliability. So I find that a lot of the things that the extremists talked about um, really came out of things that were not authentic. And in fact, when you looked at the interpretations of the verses, the context of the verses, translation, etc., their interpretations were completely wrong. They were, they were, they had been falsified in some cases, meaning they will say that it says this, but in fact, it doesn't say that. So, spending two years there in a very deep dive study of the Islamic sources, this is when I would go through what I later learned was this thing called de-radicalization. In society, as soon as you start seeing somebody is getting radicalized or is an extremist, people instantly isolate them. For example, they categorize them under labels like dangerous people, threat to society. And is this how people should be reacting to a case where, you know, maybe their loved one or somebody they know of in their neighborhood is going through this radicalization process? So... You know, this is something that Parents for Peace is, um, you know, very well involved in. And at that place where is first to identify how the radicalization is occurring. So a person is, you know, increasingly extreme, becoming more and more extreme in their views. If family members can see that, 
and or others. It could be friends. It could be a teacher in school. It could be a colleague at work. The first thing to do is not to isolate that person and not to completely cut them off, even if they might cut you off. It does happen. But to remain in their orbit and influence as much and as long as possible and to engage them with personal stories and personal things, especially for those with whom you've had a friendship for so long. Keep working on that friendship or whatever that the nature of that relationship is. Condemning them, pointing fingers at them, damning them to hell. These are not tactics that work. Having a strong support system around that person is going to be very necessary. That was Mubin Sheikh, a former extremist, talking with our correspondent Priyanka Shankar about how he now helps young people drawn toward extremist terror ideologies get de-radicalized. Sheikh is also a professor of public safety at Seneca College in Toronto, Canada, and helps families tackling de-radicalization with the NGO called Parents for Peace. You can hear more with Mubin at our website, peacetalksradio.com, either in the longer version of our program or in Priyanka's entire interview with him. It's all at peacetalksradio.com. And that is all the time we have for today's program, Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special, offering highlights from just some of the episodes our team of correspondents helped produce in the year 2023. We thank Danielle Price, Emily Cohen, Julia Joubert, Senjan, Yamini Ranjan, and Priyanka Shankar for their interviews and reporting. Again, what you heard today were just short excerpts from full programs on these topics that you can hear in their entireties if you go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, to hear the shows or share them with others. Also at peacetalksradio.com, you can dig into our archive to hear any of the hundreds of programs on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, read and share transcripts, sign up to subscribe to our podcasts, and you can write to us anytime at info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. And while at our website, don't forget to consider a donation to help keep our nonprofit work going. I'm Paul Ingalls. For our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, our executive director, Nola Davis-Moses, and the rest of our crew, thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.